If you have your Bibles, then I'd encourage you to turn them open or use that handout so we can follow along and work through the next message in our series through the book of Psalms. More specifically, we're working through book one right now in this series of teachings. And the flow of today's message, to give you just the big outline, is I want to begin with a long-ish introduction. And it's going to be a summary from an article by Carl Truman. Then I want to tell you a personal story that I think drove home the point of the article. And then I'd like us to walk through this psalm, this song. So if you want to think of it in three steps, we're going to do a summary, a story, and then a song, a song from God's Word. So let's take them one at a time. This will be the flow of today's message. Let's begin with a summary of an article that was written by theologian scholar Carl Truman. The title of the article is, What Can Miserable Christians Sing? And I'm going to summarize the, the main ideas with some of his words and my own words to just try and hopefully make the point from the article. He begins by saying that many of us in this room, in churches like ours, would despise and hate the health, wealth, and prosperity teachings that are rampant in America. Yet, there is a real danger that these heretical teachings have seeped into the everyday imagination of Christians in a very imperceptible but devastating way. How has this happened? Truman argues not from direct statements or teachings from our pulpits that affect our theology. Most of you, if you were given a direct black and white, here's the prosperity gospel, you'd say, that's heresy. No way, I don't believe that. But instead, this has creeped into churches and imaginations, even of people like us at Embassy. How? Through the unconscious belief that the Christian faith is, or at least it should be, about our health, wealth, and happiness. So how do you back that up? Support that argument, Mr. Truman. And he says, one external evidence of the changes about our expectation or our day-to-day -day imagination of the world can be found by looking at the language of our contemporary Christian worship. And he says, not so much the forms, is it organ or guitar or piano, is there a big band or is there just one person, not the forms as much as its content. And he said, one observation about the content of modern worship that sticks out is that the Psalms, the big Bible's songbook, has been almost entirely dropped from our worship, especially relative to church history. Why is this the case? Various reasons could be given, but perhaps, Truman suggests, a high percentage of the Psalms are avoided because they're taken up with lamentation or to feel sad, unhappy, tormented, broken, and you all probably don't need to be reminded, but in our culture, these emotions don't have much credibility. Sure, people still feel them today. But if we admit that sadness and brokenness is just a normal part of everyday life, so much so that we would sing about those realities, 
Well, that would be admitting our weakness, our failure in our health, the poverty of our wealth, and our sadness instead of our happiness. Most people in the world that are important or influential certainly aren't going to give much time to the weakness of these cries of lament that we find in the Psalms. But what Truman says is truly disturbing is when the cries of lamentation disappear from the language of worship in the church. Is it because our churches don't feel any reasons to lament? Is it because maybe, as he suggests more likely, we have drunk so deeply at the well of American materialism that we simply do not know what to do with such pathetic cries and confessions of weakness that we start to read the Psalms and think, well, that's embarrassing. Christians, brothers and sisters of embassy, we should know better. We know that the Bible says that the human condition is a poor one. We should be well aware of the deceitfulness of the human heart. But if we consume a steady diet of jolly hymns and happy, clappy music week in and week out, this will inevitably create unrealistic expectations about which the normal Christian life is one long triumphalistic street party. But on the other hand, if we turn to the Psalms, and we find in the Psalms much agony, much lamentation, despair, and then when the joy manifests itself, it sounds very different from the joy that is in much of our Western Christian society. Then we now have the God-given language for the church to express the deepest agonies of the human soul in the context of weekly corporate worship. So then, Truman asks, does then the absence of these cries from the contemporary worship scene in America indicate that our comfortable values of Western middle-class consumerism have slowly and silently infiltrated the church to make it so that the cries of the weak are irrelevant, embarrassing, or signs of failure? He then argues, I believe that it is the exclusion of these experiences and, more importantly, these expectations from the Psalms in our worship that is a large reason that the church today has its witness crippled and its evangelism ineffective. And this is the line that leads to the story. By excluding cries of loneliness, dispossession, and desolation from worship— the church today has effectively silenced and excluded the voices of those who are themselves lonely, dispossessed, and desolate worshipers, both those who should be inside the church and those who are outside. It has implicitly endorsed the banal aspirations of American consumerism and generated an insipid, trivial, and unrealistic triumphant Christianity. End of summary, story time. I read this article maybe 10 plus years ago. It was provocative, wasn't it? Then I heard a friend, a friend that started sharing why it was so difficult to go to church. 
And for me, as a zealous, aspiring preacher at this season of my life, going to seminary thinking church is the best, it's the highlight of my week, what in the world could make you not want to go to church? And as simple as I could summarize that conversation, he said, the music. I can't stand the music. And I'm like, oh, because it's, it's not up to par regarding the, the quality of like the music you hear on the radio. Oh, no, no, no. The happy, clappy, constant, joyful, I've got to be happy if I'm worshiping Jesus. And he just confessed, I have been in a constant state of despair and sorrow and depression. And whenever I go to church, it seems like everybody else is happy. And when we sing these triumphant, joyful songs, if I sing them, it's about as fake as I could possibly be to join in. And so I just don't want to go at all. To hear this young man's confession drove home the article where it hit my heart. I realized probably more so than just reading the article, oh wow, some of you, maybe even right now, are thinking, I know exactly what that guy is talking about. So let's turn our attention to a song. A song that if we could summarize it in a word, that's about sadness. So whether you're looking at the back of your handout or in your Bibles, let me read to you Psalm 6. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? I am weary with moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eyes waste away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. Well, on the handout that I've provided, I've tried to hopefully show that there are three sections of this sad song, a song that is about sadness. The first section is verses one through five, and I have put on the outline, in a word, in a phrase, the prayer, the song is, I'm desperate, Lord. You'll notice that in verses one through five, in bold and underline, the repetition of, O Lord, O Lord, O Lord, O Lord, and then even in verse five, notice, you, you. The person that the psalmist is talking about in verses one through five is 
the Lord, and he is directing his prayer and his language to the Lord, which is a contrast for the rest of this song. So verses 1 through 5 is to God, and it is addressing him repeatedly. O Lord, O Lord, O Lord, O Lord, as you see there five times. Second section, verses 6 to 7. In a phrase, in a short summary, he's now describing the setting and the circumstance that he is in that then led to this desperate cry for help. And the setting, in a phrase, the the circumstance is, I'm depressed, Lord. Lastly, third section of the psalm, verses 8 to 10, I'm depending on the Lord. Let's work through each of these sections, and my hope and prayer is that as we work through this psalm, we will be better equipped to pray prayers of lament, to sing songs of sadness, and to have language that is given to us from God for how to address him when this is exactly what's going on in our lives or the lives of those that we love. First, verses 1 through 5, I'm desperate, Lord. There's simply three requests. Even though there's more verbs, Hebrew parallelism means that one big idea is being made and said in two ways. You'll see that with this first request. Verse 1, O Lord, and the language here is in a form that is a very soft way of coming to a mighty ruler king. Some of you may remember in the story of Esther. Esther comes to the king, and she does not want to assume. So she's she's talking to the Lord in a certain Hebrew form and phrase that's not assertive and demanding. It's rather, please, please, king. And that's how this verse begins. Oh, Lord, please, let not your rebuke of me be anger. Let not your discipline of me be be because of your wrath. Now, if we look down at verses 7 and 8, I think we have a little clue as to why the psalm begins this way. He says very specifically in verse 7 that he is wasting away because of the grief in his life because of his enemies. Then look at verse 8, depart from me, enemies, workers of evil. And then the way the Psalm concludes, verse 10, all my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. So the the real setting here, I want to argue, is a setting about suffering that he is being tempted to believe is the direct result of God's divine punishment because that's the voice in his ear from his enemies, his friends, his accuser. That, I think, is the setting of Psalm 6, if we were to recreate it. Bad things are happening in your life. Then you've got people chirping, saying very unhelpful things, and it's making you feel worse. The bad things were bad, but now this is even worse. That's Psalm 6 in a nutshell. So he begins, O Lord, I sure hope that this is not your anger and your wrath. This is a very common idea throughout the Old Testament. Not necessarily in a way that we want to affirm as a direct one-to-one correlation, but we know from study of Old Testament scriptures and general historical culture, there was a concept of divine retribution. 
that was very much just the lingo and the imagination of these people. So in a, in a nutshell, I have something bad happen to me. I get sick tomorrow. People in, in this world would have thought, well, what bad thing did I do to deserve that? That's, that's what divine retribution means, very simply put. If I had to guess, there are many of you that are Christians. That's the way your mind works as well. Or you hear the chirping from other people as well. Well, what bad thing did you do? Well, you just must not have had enough faith, huh? I, I know this is what we do. This is how we process. I sit in on these meetings with you in your suffering, and you wonder, is God punishing me for this? And here's what we know for certain. As New Testament Christians, because of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, there is, therefore, right now, no punishment from the wrath of God for those who are in Christ Jesus. You can bank on that. You can silence the enemies. You can say what the psalmist says, depart from me. No, that's not true. Now, it could be discipline. It could be loving fatherly discipline, different category altogether, but not the fierceness of this Hebrew parallel of wrath and anger. That's this hot intensity of God's just so displeased with you. Brothers and sisters, please argue with yourself. Reason with yourself. The New Testament has made this plain and black and white. God does not deal with Christians in that way. But you can understand, hopefully, you can understand emotionally why someone might want to begin with a thought in their prayer. God, is this, is this because of something I did? Please, I, I don't want your fierce anger. So that's his first request. If you're going to discipline, I don't want to fear the f feel and experience your fierce wrath. Second request. Notice that the way graciousness, be gracious to me, is being paralleled with healing. And then notice that both of those sentences in verse 2 have a, a, a for explanation. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for, because I am languishing. The word languish presents a picture of somebody who's withering like a flower under the hot sun without any water. My bones are troubled. My bones troubled is not just my bones hurt. It is a picture that is literally defined as I am terrified out of my senses. The word troubled there has a connotation of terror. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am like a withering flower. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are terrified. I am terrified out of my senses. Oftentimes in Psalms and in poetry, bones are a representation not necessarily of just your physical body, but of the very core of your body. And that's what is paralleled in this next phrase. Look at verse 2 one more time, or the beginning of verse 3 more accurately. For my bones are troubled, start of verse 3, my soul is greatly troubled. So there's a, a comparison contrast and a, a parallelism between bones, troubled, and my soul that's troubled. And I think it would be too simplistic to say he has physical illness and he has spiritual persecution. That's one very simplistic way to say it. But if we combine them together, the concept is this. My whole being 
inside and out, the very core of who I am physically, emotionally. The word for soul there is, is not the part of you that goes away when you die. The word soul there is the life-giving essence, the animating force of God that takes some man from dirt and breathes life into him, and he becomes a living being. That's the first time that we see this word referring to a human in the Bible. Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. A man was formed, and then God breathed into him, and then he became a nefesh, a living being. It's, it's a word that means a person, but it's a word that refers to the whole of the person. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for my whole entire being is troubled. And then there's a pause. Verse 3, B, the second half of verse 3. The psalmist then can't say any more words of request. There's this little break in the flow of part one, and there's a break in between the words themselves that create, as I tried to read it for you in the first reading, a pause, an almost exclamation point at the end of each word. But you, oh Lord, how long? I know that you've been there. I know that you have been in that place where you've prayed and prayed and prayed, and you know that your only hope is God. But nothing's changed. That is what is being communicated with these words. But you, oh Lord, how long? My hope is you, God. You, you're the hope I have, but you're not doing anything about it. Why? Why this delay? And as I summarized, this whole section is, I'm so desperate, Lord. Which leads to the third request. Turn, O Lord, deliver my life, save me. I want to just very simply describe this as, do something, God. The desperation is, is coming to crescendo effect. Change do something, turn. The word turn there is literally the word that's used for humans when they repent to change their mind, which then gets people all like, you know, concerned. So God repents? God changes his mind? I thought he was the same yesterday, today, and forever. He, he never changes, that we have confidence in the, the unchangeable character of God. And Again, you need to remember, we're talking about a psalm that's looking up from a human's perspective, and all we can think of as humans to, to provide language is like, here's the way things are going. I'm praying. God's not doing anything. And so then you ask and you're like, do something, change your mind. Even if this is not nuancing the theological accuracies necessarily of, of what it's like from the perspective of God and his overarching plan, you can feel it in the moment, can't you? That there's times when you're just begging God to change his mind because his mind seems to be set on this course. And I've asked again and again, and he's not done anything about it. I think that's why it spills over into verse 4 of, repent, God, change. More specifically, deliver my life. And the word deliver here creates a word picture of taking something that is in a, a batch, and there's one thing that needs to be plucked out. And so the deliverance here is very specific kind of image. I am engulfed. I am surrounded. 
I'm stuck in a bad spot. I need you to pluck me out and deliver me. And then the same word that parallels it, as you can see, as we tried to illustrate in this outline, save me, rescue me. And notice the basis, the basis for that request. At this point, he's not as soft as he was in the first verse, right? Please, please, I'm, I'm coming very humbly. Now, now it's, Lord, how, how much longer? I'm desperate. Turn, change, deliver, save. Why? I'll give you two reasons, Lord. I'm arguing with you now. Reason number one, you have made promises to David that David and his people will never have the steadfast love of the Lord be taken from them. So I believe what's happening here is he's saying, turn, deliver, save on the basis of your promises, O God. A very, very interesting study I came across this week of every single time that the psalmist asks a request for, be gracious to me, save me, and then you follow the logic of why they argue for that, you will never hear these kind of psalms. Save me, deliver me, be gracious to me because of how good I was last week. Save me, deliver me because I went to church last Sunday. Save me or deliver me because I promise I will never do it again. Oh, how many times have you prayed that one? The psalmist argues, save me, deliver me because your promises. That should be the bread and butter of your prayer life. Please learn this. Instruction, workshop setting. How do we not just learn what Psalm 6 is about, but how do we use the Psalms for our prayer life? Here's a good takeaway. Pray to God on the basis of his promises. How do you eradicate health, wealth, and happiness from your expectation? Well, if there's a specific promise that God has not made, well, then you're probably not going to pray those things. God, would you give me that big house because you promised you would? Oh, wait. He didn't promise that, did he? See how that's going to change your prayer life? Your hopes, your desires, your expectations? But yet, God did promise, I will not remove my steadfast, that's that word we learned last week, chesed love. My faithfulness, my commitment to you, I will not leave you dry. Notice the second argument. This is, this is the parts of the Psalms that I think we should really relish in because this is very different than the way you and I would think. Save me because you made a promise, reason number two, verse five. Save me because if I die, well, then there's going to be nobody around to, to give you praise. That's the logic. The logic's, God, I know you want praise from me. I know you want my mouth singing your praises. Well, if I'm dead, how am I going to sing your praises? So keep me alive. Save me. I mean, how many times have you thought that way first and then articulated that in a prayer? I mean, God, don't you want me around? Do you see why I've entitled this section, Lord, I'm desperate. I'm pulling for any argument I can find. That's the way I interpret this verse. Section 2, verses 6 and 7. He's desperate because he is depressed. The language here of the psalmist should hopefully be helpful for some of you that think, man, every time I go to church, I'm just like that friend you told. 
Everybody just seems happy. Can I just make it clear? I am a kind of pastor that doesn't just want to sit in my house and not spend time with you all. I hope that that's evident in the way I live my life and the way I pastor you all. I want to spend time with you. And because I've been doing that for seven years in the northwest suburbs of Chicago, I know that many of you come week in and week out and you're depressed. I know this. I know that you have really hard times that you go through and that you're sad. And I know that sometimes you come to church and you're thinking, everybody else has got their act together, but it's just me. Don't avoid the Psalms. Find a place of refuge when you feel like you're the only one. Read descriptions of depression like verses 6 to 7 and think, yeah, I felt that way before. I feel that way right now. I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. The word pictures are incredible. I'm weary is a word that's used when somebody's worked a really, really hard day and they're exhausted. Physically, utterly exhausted. Didn't get a good night's sleep. Remember that sermon a couple of weeks ago? Sleeping, a song about sleep. Well, this is the song about sleeplessness about a depressed, sleepless person, and why can't they sleep? Because their bed has become a swimming pool. And I don't say that to be funny. Literally, that's the phrase. Every night I swim in my bed of tears. How about that for a word picture? I cry so much that my bed is a pool, and I am swimming in it. Now, obviously, this is hyperbole. This is poetic language. It's supposed to connect your heart to be like, I've felt that way sometimes. My pillow soaked with my tears. I drench my couch. And the word drench here is used to talk about something that can happen when water makes something dissolve. So it's like wax melting. When I sit on my couch and I think about all that's going on, I weep uncontrollably. It's, it's not just a little bit of crying. It's a weep-a-thon. And as I'm weeping, my couch dissolves underneath me with the kind of water that's coming from my eye sockets. Which then when you read verse 7, you're thinking, well, very naturally, then your eyes would just be all puffy and, and weary. And you'd think, well, that must be why in verse 7 he says, my eye wastes away because of grief. Makes sense, right? But that's not what he says. My eyes waste away because of grief. They grow weak because, not of my crying, my eyes grow weary and full of grief because of my enemies. The tears and the crying are the result of the accusations of the enemies. God's not going to listen to you. <laughs> you keep praying to the air. Really? God's going to save you? There's no hope found in God. And that's why he's wasting away. That's why he's weak. Because of my enemies. So what do you take hope from this? I mean, talk about a depressing sermon. Verses 8, 9, and 10 conclude the psalm as psalms regularly do without leaving you dry. 
without hanging you out to dry and leaving you hanging. The psalmist concludes by giving you the reasons why he's praying in the first place. Because he is depending on the Lord. Notice the bracket right there visually. Verses 8 and 10 are bracketing the three repeated phrases. And this is why I think this is kind of the heart of the setting. Evil doers, these foes, these enemies, they will be ashamed and greatly troubled. Why? Because in due time, I am confident the Lord has heard and will hear and does accept my prayer. I'm banking on it. Do you have that kind of confidence that the Lord has heard the sounds of your weeping? Not even just your prayers. One of the things I've appreciated about the Psalms so far in our study of them is that similar to what we hear in Romans 8 from Paul, and I think he's, he's clearly getting this from the psalmist. Sometimes when we pray, we don't even have words. All we have are groans. Just, oh, I don't even know what to say. You ever felt that way? The Lord hears your groans. You can take confidence in the Lord when you know that he has promised chesed love, a compassionate God who's slow to anger and abounding in love. He's not got a short reserve of love toward weak people. He turns his eye especially on the weak he opposes the proud and the strong and those who want to just go around and act like they've got all their stuff together. So the psalmist concludes with confidence, depending on the Lord. So let's conclude our sermon now. Let's think about three things for us as we take away this psalm. Number one, do you ever avoid sadness? Do you avoid it in the Bible? Do you avoid sadness and lament in your own heart? Stuff the feelings, not express them? Do you ever avoid sad people because you're afraid they're going to bring you down? One commentator, I thought, had a very insightful comment about Psalm 6. He said, we avoid psalms like these because they're like that negative friend who's so depressed all the time that they threaten to drag us down every time we get together. Some of you here today, you know that you're depressed and you got the guilt and the burden of feeling like I'm just dragging everybody down. And then others of us might avoid those sad people. Like, that was a downer of a get together. Next time they text, hey, want to have coffee again? No. Are you avoiding sadness? Because the expectation you have is that, well, if we're Christians, you should be joyful. It's just like that. It's black and white, isn't it? Now we learned last week. Everything's black and white. You should not be sad. Rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again. Philippians 4.4, rejoice. Brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you pastorally that if you are experiencing a season of the dark night of the soul, as it's been called throughout Christian history, or the description of depression that we find here in Psalm 6, 
I don't ever think that you should look at yourself as just this terrible burden. And that's why I'm not going to even share my problems with other people. Yes, you are a gift to Embassy Church by opening up your problems and your depression and your sadness precisely so that everybody around here will not have the constant message of health, wealth, and happiness seep into our expectations and imaginations. We need a regular dose of honest, transparent confessions from some of us in the community. And without your voice, if it's silenced because we just think, something's wrong with you, I don't have that problem, that attitude would kill the witness of Embassy Church in an instant. The gospel will not be the gospel if we care about the truth that God has come to rescue broken people. But if we act like we're not broken, we act like, well, I get Jesus and everything's good in my life. Then we've got a false gospel, even if we don't write it down on paper and say, yeah, health, wealth, and happiness. We have it in our minds and our subconsciouses. Let me give you one more quote from Truman's article. It's a word of encouragement and instruction about the Psalms of lament. He says, we need to learn to lament. So read the Psalms. Read them over and over until you have learned the vocabulary, the grammar, and the syntax that's necessary for you to lay your heart before the Lord in lamentation. And when you do this, you will have the resources to cope with your periods of suffering and despair and heartbreak. And you can keep worshiping and trusting even in the midst of the blackest of times. Additionally, you will develop a greater understanding of how fellow Christians in the church are agonizing, say of bereavement or depression or despair. Sometimes it is difficult for those brothers and sisters in the church to sing, Jesus wants me like a sunbeam. These kind of song lyrics, to sing them with gusto every Sunday morning in the midst of depression can be very hard, and reading the Psalms can teach us that some people are exactly there. You will have more credibility to the things that you have to say to those who are shattered and broken in the church and those outside of the church. Whether they be those burdened, burned out bank managers or the down and out drug junkies, to whom you may be called to be a great witness to God's unconditional love and mercy and grace to the unloved and those that the world thinks are unlovely. As the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 6, such were some of you. Question two, do you quickly make a habit of trying to figure out all that God is doing in your suffering or in other people's sufferings. Something bad happens, and your, your instinct, your habit, is to quickly try and figure out, okay, let me play God here. How is this working for my good? Suffering happens, and then quickly jump to, well, this is some kind of test of my faith. I know that. We just sang that in the song we just sang. How firm a foundation. 
We're about to sing it again in the last song we're going to sing, Sovereign Over Us. We're singing songs about suffering this Sunday. And that part of the thing we can take away as Christians is that God is not punishing us with wrath, but sometimes he certainly is disciplining us. Ah, okay. So the takeaway is that when I suffer, I should try and figure out what God's doing to teach me. Yes, but usually not right away. Be slow, friends. Be slow to try and figure out the sovereignty of God. If not, don't even try and do it at all. How is God testing your faith and working this for good? Well, God alone knows. And too often, I think, when suffering happens, that's the default response for so many of us. The danger with this approach is that it will dull our awareness of how that suffering even though it can be used by God for good, is bad. Oh, well, it's working some for good. You can rejoice. Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you have many trials of of various kinds because you know it's going to work perseverance. That's true. It's good. We should talk that way. We should sing that way. We should think that way. But friends, realize that when suffering comes, the first immediate response for you and for us as a community should be, that stinks. This is not good. God's created intention from Genesis is not this. This isn't right. And you can express the unrightness of it in prayer and in conversation. You can acknowledge that that is just really hard right now. And, and then somebody be like, well, let's figure out why it's so hard. No, just say, yeah, it is. It's hard right now. And just be with them in that moment. Then I think there'll be time and conversation for considering that trial pure joy and this is so true isn't it more often than not it's way after the fact when you look back and you think no way I would have never asked for God to do that in my life but I am so glad that he did because look what the result was as he tested my faith as he helped me persevere and as he turned what was awful for good You will hardly ever know that right then in that moment. And we will hardly really know just maybe a glimpse, maybe five years later. But the pastoral word here is don't just skip over sadness and then jump to let me interpret the divine will of God. When suffering occurs, let us suffer together. Number three, the psalm ends with confidence even in the midst of the most bleak, trying kind of times. So, question for us, how can we get that confidence? Do you have that kind of confidence? If you're going through suffering right now, do you have the confidence of verses 8, 9, and 10, especially the middle section? I know that the Lord hears me. I know that the Lord will hear me. I know the Lord will answer me. Where does this come from? I want us to have that kind of confidence. And I think we've already alluded to one concept. You can have confidence that God will not break his promises. And so pray and trust in the promises of God. But in a much greater and more tangible and more clear picture, all the promises of David that God would not remove his steadfast love, have become yes and amen in the Lord Jesus Christ. And more specifically, in John chapter 12, Jesus is talking to a group of people 
And he quotes Psalm 6 and says these words, My soul is troubled. What should I say? Father, save me from this hour? Do you notice the language of Psalm 6? The first half is, is identical in the original manuscripts. You, you line them up. He's quoting Psalm 6. Verse 3, my soul is greatly troubled. My soul is greatly troubled. And then Jesus says, should I pray that the Father would save me from this hour, this time of testing, this trial? Wasn't it this very reason and purpose that I have come to the earth was for this hour? And so he prays this to the Father. No, instead of asking for you to save me and deliver me from death, Father, glorify your name. Do you get the logic here? You can pray with confidence that the Lord will hear you and that he will save you and he will redeem you from the pit and from death and from destruction and from depression. Maybe not tomorrow or maybe not even in this life, but he will ultimately save you because Jesus prayed not to save him from that hour, but instead say, Father, this is the very reason you sent me, is so that you would glorify your name. And then verse 32 of that same section in John chapter 12, he says, when I am lifted up from the earth, that will be the moment when he will draw all people to himself. And then John tells us, Jesus said these words so that he could show them by what kind of death he was going to die. Jesus was crowned and enthroned and lifted up on a cross, died in the place of sinners who were deserving of all of the suffering that came their way. And Jesus, the innocent one, did not deserve a single bit of the accusations or the judgment or even the death that he experienced. But he took it on himself and had the chance in a conversation on this earth to say, you know, what should I do? Should I pray, God, save me from this? And he explicitly says, no, Father, glorify yourself because this is the whole reason I came. Or to put it another way, Jesus came so that you and I could have confidence like this psalmist, not just in the promises that God gave to David, but in the promises he gave to David's greater son, Jesus, that through him there would be no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Through him there would be resurrection from the dead. Through him there would be new bodies and bones and souls that are raised in the resurrection from the dead. Friends, do you have hope in the gospel of resurrection life? That there will be bodies that go down into the grave and they will stop praising God, but then one day because of Christ's prayer, Father glorify your name, he glorified him in death and he glorified him in resurrection and there will be your lips praising the Father again. So even when you go to the very deepest, darkest pit, death itself, you can know, you can have confidence, God does hear our prayers. Enemies, be gone. My God has heard, will hear, and accept my prayer on the basis of the promises of God and their fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray now together. 
Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we come in the name of Jesus and on the merits of his blood and his blood alone, and we pray that your spirit will bring comfort to those who are hurting. We pray that your Holy Spirit will bring language and words of worship for those that need to express the deep pains and sorrows that they're currently going through right now, and we pray that your spirit will create a community that is empathetic to the pains and sufferings that we are experiencing in this life. We ask that you would eradicate the health, wealth, and happiness gospel that's no gospel at all, is terrible news, and that it would be eradicated not just in our doctrinal propositions, our theology on paper, but it would be eradicated from our expectations, the day-to-day way we imagine what the world is like, and that we would remember that the world is broken and it's not good. And even when you turn it for good, we pray that you would ask us to be patient with one another and not try and figure everything out, that you'd humble us, and that we would receive your divine discipline when necessary. Lord, there is so much that we are in need of, and so we pray with the psalmist now. Help. We're desperate. Do something. Save. Rescue us. We pray this all in Jesus' name and for the glory of of your glorious name. Amen.